Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And we are a psychology and history podcast. Where sometimes we both do both, sometimes we do neither. Sometimes we both do both. <laughs> sometimes you cover when psychology. Have we done both? Well, my topic today is a little bit of history. Actually, some of my, mine is a little bit of psychology. See, sometimes we both do both. Yeah. Okay. All right. Listen. And then cult weeks, we both do neither. There we go. Guys, we sat down to record maybe an hour ago. Yeah. Couldn't about do that. it. Nope. Not feeling motivated. You know what we really needed? Champagne and sushi. Champagne on the porch. So we are one bottle in at the moment. <laughs> and sushi's on its way. TBD on that. Um, you know what else that I hear is on its way? Hmm. The NSYNC reunion tour. Wait, what? What? Wait, what? You haven't heard that? No. Oh, my God. They're Yes, they're coming together for, like, one show. And it's rumored that they're, like, going to release a, a tour. You've got to be kidding. No. A whole... NSYNC reunion tour. Yes. Which we've all been waiting for, obviously. For forever. And I don't care how much the tickets are, I'm going. Uh, let me know when you're going, because I might be going, too. Perfect. We might have to make that happen. I, I am going to this tour. Hell or high Period. watermelon. For yes. sure. Absolutely. Also, Lauren Hill is touring again. Who's that? Lauren Hill? From, like, her one album, The Miseducation? Of Lauren Hill. What? Wait, what? What? Wait, what? Who? Lauren Hill. What is, name a song. Uh, uh, <laughs> that thing, doo wop. What? Okay, so do you remember <laughs> Sister Act Two? Yes. The the girl who could actually sing, but whose mom was like, "You can't sing." Yes. That's Lauren Hill. Okay, see, why didn't so you say so? she released one album called The Miseducation of Lauren Hill that's incredible. Wow, because she wasn't allowed to be educated, because she went to a Catholic school. Because <laughs> of the nuns. Because of the nuns, it's... Because of her dad, in mm-hmm. some weird way. Yes. Um, also, it's concerning that we don't know Lauren Hill, and we're going to have to. This has now become a we problem. Got it. Not just a, a you situation. This is a we, sure, and us, sure, sure, we sure. are in this together. Yes. So we're going to go listen to that while we eat our sushi <laughs> halfway through this episode. Because <laughs> once you hear her songs, you'll know her. Yeah, you didn't do a great job of describing it. I'm one bottle of champagne into this episode. <laughs> I also saw that JoJo, like one of JoJo's songs. JoJo Siwa or JoJo of JoJo? JoJo, get out right now, JoJo. Oh <laughs> one God. of her songs is like 15 years old. And no, I was like, stop. Wow. I can't. Mm-mm. We cannot be that old. Is it like the OG JoJo? I actually only know one JoJo song. And it's like the first one she and it's released. Get Out. Yeah. Leave right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. It she good re-recorded one. that. Her her phone. Her, her voice dropped like several octaves. Like she's got like a really sure. dynamic range as an, as an adult. Good for her. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that journey for her. She's growing. Um... Also, Sam Smith is currently touring. Oh, really? Oh, I did see that. And uh, one of my friends went, and I really hate that I missed it. Yeah. Because if I'd known, I would have been all up in that. I think I looked at tickets, and I think they were a little bit more than I wanted to spend. I could see that. Um, but 
I think that you and I have talked about, you know, going to see a show this year. I think this is the year in the in the fall and the winter mm-hmm. where we are getting back to our roots. Our Everybody roots. needs to go yep. see some Broadway so we can talk about it in season three. I agree. Um, also, I love that we have a Broadway series South Center in our town now so like we Mm -hmm. can broadway has been brought to us right we no longer have to go to durham raleigh or charlotte correct in order to see the broadway right it's exhausting it's so much driving when we could find free parking in greensboro and then walk and get tacos on the way Mm -hmm. from crafted Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is all i want in life is tacos and broadway and maybe some sushi while we're recording our episode we could have had Mexican for dinner tonight. Any regrets? Not a one. No regrets. No, re- no regrets. Got it. Okay. Um, I might want another marg later, but we'll figure that out okay. when we get to that point in our lives. That's a problem for futurists. Got it. As we are reflecting, as season two is coming to an end, mm. what has been your favorite episode of season two? Or favorite topic? I'm so glad you asked. Um, I really enjoyed the MLM episode mm-hmm. that I did. I think mm-hmm. that's one of my favorites of me, mm-hmm. personally. Mm-hmm. For you, I'm going to throw back to episode two of season two mm-hmm. and North Korean defectors. Yes. That, that just stands out as one of my all-time favorite episodes for me. What I about think you? I think my favorite for me is the North Korean defector. Part one? Part, all three parts. All three parts. I, got it. I really got involved in my brain. Yeah. Like, I really you became emotionally invested. with it. Yeah. Um, for you, though, I think I, I liked the laughing epidemic, the East African laughing epidemic. Oh, that was a good epidemic. one. That mm-hmm. was creepy. Um, yeah. But that, these are also very recent. But I think we've had a wonderful time, and we have some some new patrons, specifically our friends from Unearthed Memphis podcast. Such hey. a sweet, sweet couple, and also their podcast is badass. Also, they've been with us like since season one. Mm-hmm. We talked about them way back when, yeah, right? Yes, sure did. And then we, well, we were supposed to both go to Tennessee, but plans changed. I ended up going to Nashville, Mm -hmm. and we talked about them during that point in our podcasting journey as well. So if you have not listened to their podcast, they talk about specifically things around the Memphis area Mm -hmm. um, that are a little bit history, a little bit psychology, just like all... A little spooky, right? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Some, Some things. Um, but even like one of their earlier episodes, which I loved right off the bat, was when they talk about the zoo, like the the yes. Memphis Zoo. Really good, such a great episode. Cute, interesting, informative. Absolutely, which I love. So, um, but what I think one of our favorite things is to connect with other podcasts too, um, and just everybody. I think that's probably been my favorite part of season two is developing and continuing those relationships mm-hmm. that we built in season one and having you know those new people that have kind of joined joined right. us on the journey so right. um 
I I think we've done a good job and I'm looking forward to season three. Me too. I love that we're already planning for season three. I'm already thinking of episodes. I know you are. Mm -hmm. The list, I have a list on my phone that just keeps getting longer. Yeah, me too. Me too. um, I was looking for, you know, what topic I was going to cover today and... um, Sometimes I try to do just searches organically uh-huh. um, to spark interest. And I was like, what am I doing? I have a list on my phone. And that's exactly. Yeah. That's exactly where I found the answer. Well, so I guess that kind of leads into the segue for my episode oh. this week. Um, because the inspiration for my episode came at 2 a.m. about three days ago. Oh. So, um it was one of those moments, like, I couldn't sleep. I was wide awake, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm wiggly and, like, wanting to watch TV or play on my phone, whatever. And my partner looks at me, and she's like, okay, let's talk about something. I was like, okay, great, because obviously I'm wide awake. I want to talk. Mm-hmm. I'm wide awake, wide awake. You remember that Katy Perry song? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Would also love to see Katy Perry in in oh, concert. Yeah. That really, would be a yeah. really great that would concert. Be good. Um, just for I Kissed a Girl, mm-hmm. TBH. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my partner, knowing me, knowing that my brain's awake, is like, let me ask you a question that you may or may not know the answer to. And she said, why are shrinks called shrinks? Mm-hmm. It's like, what a fantastic question. I actually don't know the answer. Which wow. is an embarrassing thing to say at the end of season two. No, no. But I didn't know the answer. Right. I, was, I could have made the guess. And right. I actually think I made some shit up because that's what we do when we don't know the answer to things. We right. make shit up. Right. Um, it's like, why is it history and not herstory? For sure. You know? For sure. Because men suck the fun out of everything. <laughs> um, so I made a guess. I think I got pretty close. But then I was like, let me do an episode about this. And so I Googled it, and there are actually, like, five reasons. Oh, my God. I know. And we don't know which one is the real reason. Well, I'm going to tell you. Once Thank you, you so give me, once you feed I'll me all the information. I'll give you five, and then Perfect. you can make a determination at the end. But we're going to go from our scale this week is most gruesome to oh. Freud. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. So that's where, that's where we are. That's weird that they don't intersect. Is it a circle? Is the question. <laughs> you know what I mean? God, I hope not. Okay. I, I hope they don't intersect. At all. At all. Well, the last three might. The okay. first one, I hope, doesn't intersect very much. Got it. All right. So, number one is the most gruesome reason that we might call them shrinks. And it goes back to shrunken heads. Ooh. Got okay. it. I haven't thought about a shrunken head in a minute. I know, since, like, the Harry Potter on the Night Bus, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That, that was my most recent reference sure. to Shrunken Heads. Maybe Pirates of the Caribbean? Caribbean? Um, it's Caribbean. Who are you? That was a weird thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Caribbean in any other context, except, except for Pirates the of the Caribbean. <laughs> okay. So the term shrinks in the context of therapists can be traced back to potentially ancient indigenous cultures. Uh, Though the way that we linguistically get there is sort of interesting. First, we have to go to the northwest region of the Amazon rainforest Mm. and understand the... Oh, I listened to a whole 
bunch of YouTube videos, and now that the champagne has kicked in, I've forgotten how to pronounce this. The Javaroan peoples, which actually consists of like four tribes, but they're all like lumped together in this one group of people who are from Ecuador and Peru. Okay, so this is where the practice of shrinking severed heads was first studied and observed and historically has been observed the most. Hmm. Like, beheading is a tale as old as time, Mm -hmm. true as it can be, but shrinking them is very specific to the northwest of the Amazon rainforest. Got it. So, shrunken heads, or santa as some might say, mm-hmm. um, were usually like human heads. And for those of you with a weak stomach, I suggest fast forwarding approximately two minutes because we're going to talk about how you shrink a human head. Oh, thank God. I was hoping that you would feel that way mm-hmm. and would not lose your head about <laughs> it. <laughs> okay. So first we start with the beheading. Sure. Now, sometimes this happened as a means of execution. That was going to be my next question. And sometimes it happened... After postmortem. Postmortem. Doesn't really matter. What's important is that the heads were severed. From there, an incision is made from the back of the ear, or from the neck up through the back of the ear, and the skin or flesh is removed from the cranium. Got it. Okay. So they're not shrinking like your skull. It's just your skin that's getting shrunken. Okay. So red seeds are placed within the nostrils. Wait, go back. Sorry. Yep. The skull is not shrinking. It's the skin. It's the skin. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much more sense. Yeah. So the skull, like the bone part is removed, done away with. Like they don't need it. It's not important. It seems important. Before you're dead? Before you're dead. Right. Once you're dead... You don't need it. You don't need it. I got you. Okay. Um, So, red seeds are placed underneath and within the nostrils to, like, keep the form of the nose. And then the lips are, like, uh, shish kebabbed shut. They're, like, there's a stick. Oh. Or a couple of sticks that are placed in your your lips to keep them. Yeah. You know what I think? That makes me think of? What? You know, in Runaway Bride, when she does the duck bill platypus, platypus. <laughs> with the tongue, Carrion's doing it. <laughs> it's so stupid, and I love it. I love it so much. Okay, so, so they duck bill platypus, they duck but bill they spike it. Correct. Okay. Yep. Then, um, like, once the head is shrunken, they remove it, and they do put the strings. So you're not okay. wrong about okay. strings. Okay. So, um... But they use, like, palm pens is what they call them. I assume it's from a palm tree mm-hmm. or something. Parts some... of palm and mustard. Right. The fat from the flesh of the head is removed, and then they put it in boiling water, which shrinks the skin to, like, a third of the size. Wow. Yep. So, basically, they're shrinking. The, they're, like, turning the skin into leather. Right. Is right. what's happening. Yeah. Then they remove it from the boiling water and they put um, like uh, rice or hot rocks or something on the inside of the skin Mm. to like shrink it from the inside too. So 
Huh. They're shrinking it all around. Got it. They want it to be as small as possible. From there, a wooden ball is placed inside the flesh to help, like, keep its form. Okay. So that's where the appearance of a skull is coming from. It's Got like it. a wooden uh, ball inside. inside. Got yep. It. The flesh is then boiled again and is uh, saturated with herbs and tannins to, like, start to um, hide, like, turn it into hide, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which colors the skin, all the things. Mm-hmm. Um Hmm. Let's see. I've never thought about this. Not once. I'm so glad that I could share it with you. Yeah. Yeah. I told you we were going to deep it or like put a little toe into history today. Yeah. Sort of. So from there, they start to like, they take it out and they start to shape the features to make sure it retains a human-esque look. Mm -hmm. So like the ears are shrunken, which is cartilage the nose is shrunken which is also cartilage but they like shape it to make it look like a human face still then the skin is rubbed with charcoal ash and decorated with beads like they might add beads to the hair which is still attached Mm. oh Um, the hair is still attached yeah so like they decorate the the shrunken head at this point got it My foot fell asleep. Hmm. Okay. So, at this point, it looks like a shrunken head. It's a little miniature face with a wooden ball. Cute. Cute, right? <laughs> um, so, the question is why. Like, why are they doing this? What's the purpose? Um, and also, how did we learn about this practice? Because the Amazon is pretty secluded from the rest of the world. So, um, in the late 1500s, Spaniard colonizers went to the Amazon. The Javaro people eventually revolted against the Spanish colonizers and slaughtered about 25,000 of them. Jeez. Yeah. whole bunch of people that were later beheaded and turned into shrunken heads. This included the governor of Lagrano, who um, was like the lead colonizer mm-hmm. in order to kill him they poured molten gold down his throat no way oh yeah. that's some game of thrones shit for sure it was a symbolic act of retribution for the governor's angering tax on the gold trade which is why they were in the amazon in the first place they were like looking for minerals and materials that they could export wow including gold So the violence of these people was so gruesome that their name has remained a word in the Spanish language meaning savage, (gasps) which is problematic Mm -hmm. for sure. Okay. So for anyone who had their ears plugged, you can unplug your ears now. The practice was done for several reasons. So the shrinking of the heads was done first to terrorize their enemies, second for spiritual reasons, and then third for healing practices. So, as you'll remember, um, if your ears weren't plugged, the skin was rubbed with charcoal ash uh, after it was shrunken. So, the charcoal ash was to keep the avenging soul from seeping out. So, it's the reason that they sewed the mouth shut. It was so that the soul, which they believe lived in the head, would not come out. Hmm, okay. So they would rub it with charcoal ash, they would sew the mouth shut, and then in hopes that 
the soul of the person that was murdered would not seek revenge upon them. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. So. So not for their own spiritual healing. Because I was like, why would they want to keep it in the body? But that would make sense if you don't want them to come after you. Right, right. So they sort of did this for a couple of reasons. They believed that um, the spirit of the enemy could help the people who killed them. So like your your spirit would in positive ways stay with the warrior who possessed the shrunken head. Got it. Um and then would help them become a better warrior. Which is one way to look at it. Sure. Um This would prevent the... Oh, I already said that. Okay. Um, They were later used for religious ceremonies and feasts that celebrate the victories of the tribe. So the warriors would wear these skulls as like a um, a source of power. What? The shrunken heads? Yeah. Okay. So they would wear the shrunken heads as like a source of power. Like, I've killed all these people. I have these shrunken heads. Their power is now my power. Mm. In a very Game of Thrones kind of way. Yes. Um, also, their souls can no longer seek revenge because I've captured their souls. Wow. Um, and then they would later be used in spiritual practices and celebrations. Okay. So, it w- it wasn't believed that like if you kept this, it was an indefinite source of power. It was like a temporary source of power. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the term head shrinker became associated with indigenous healers. Mm -hmm. So healing in the sense of like spiritual healing, but also physical and mental healing. Um, When searching for additional information about this practice and how it was used by indigenous healers, the answers become unclear. Um. We can imagine that the spiritual rituals in these communities may have been associated with healing through like this idea of what is healing for the community versus healing for the individual. We also know that indigenous medicine people were often spiritually connected, right? Like Mm -hmm. the spiritual healing and the physical or mental healing was typically the same person. So these um, shrunken heads would be made to like help people in battle, and then they would be used to help heal the community through either a. Um, There's a lot of like blood revenge was the the idea like we're killing your people because you killed our people. Yeah, and then there's healing in that to some degree. So that's one theory okay. of where shrinks come from. Is like this head shrink. Interesting. Yeah. Which was my first guess, actually. Hmm. Which is strange. Probably shouldn't have been my first guess. But it was <laughs> my first guess. So option number two of where this idea of shrink comes from when we're talking about therapists or psychologists is it's possible it comes from the Latin verb shrinkar which means to look into. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. So could be connected to the idea of therapy. Mm-hmm. Same like root 
structure, right? Looking into someone's psyche and understanding to figure out what makes them tick. Helping individuals shrink their emotional burdens or psychological issues through the therapeutic process. Could checks out. Sure, checks out. Option number one is, I think, the most interesting at this point, is this idea of, like, shrinks being attached to head shrinking because, like, you're using it for your own power, restoring some form of healing. Mm -hmm. We can sort of see that. Option number two is the Latin root of the word shrink. Option number three is about hypnosis hypnosis oh yeah yeah so option number three is from william james who is first the first person in recorded history using the word shrink when talking about psychology so in 1882 william james james who is an american philosopher and psychologist wrote about his experiences with hypnosis This is well after Mesmer. This is like well into hypnotism Mm -hmm. as we know it today. And while he was being hypnotized for reasons that were undisclosed, he um, came out and said he could not remember what happened to him while he was hypnotized. Which is pretty normal, right? Right. Like that's the whole, that's the whole point. Right. It's like shit happens when you're not conscious of it and that's the thing you need to have healed Mm -hmm. so he described his inability to recall events that occurred during hypnosis as feeling like your brain shrunk oh okay so that's option number three is william james was hypnotized and he was like listen it felt like my brain was shrunk okay because i was hypnotized so he's the first person who was like my brain was shrunk it's 1882 Let's link up those two concepts together. For sure. So then we go in a little bit further, and someone else coins the term shrinking violets. This is option number four. Have you ever heard the phrase shrinking violets? Never. I had not either. So in 1895, Dr. George Beard coins the term shrinking violet violets, like the purple flowers. Mm-hmm which was meant to describe people who were so sensitive that their emotions would cause them to cry uncontrollably. Mm. Um, Currently, this phrase is defined as a very shy or timid person who avoids contact with others if possible, which also sounds like um, agoraphobia. Yeah. Yeah. To use it in a sentence, June, who is no shrinking violet, crossed the room and introduced herself to the newcomers. Got it. Okay. So it's this idea of like, I'm Being, so beautiful. Oh, I'm so meek. I'm Help so me. meek and timid. I can't talk to nobody. <laughs> um, so shrinking, again, being the operative term. Got it. Um, I don't think it's this one. It feels a little bit more like a stretch, right? Yeah. So this was option number four. One shrinking shrinking heads the more you say it the more you want to say shrieking like the shrieking shack uh-huh. two is the latin um the latin root the thir- third one is william james being hypnotized fourth shrinking violets and then we get to freud oh freud 
So we could never get too far away from our guy, Freud. Mm -hmm. He published a book, The Interpretation of Dreams, which we talked about earlier this season, in 1898. And we already know about this. Like, this is talking about unconscious desires, fears, and dreams, etc. Apparently, he referred to the interpretation of dreams as being like, quote, shrinking a person's brain. Much how mental health experts may interpret someone's mental health and let it, and shrink it. Mm -hmm. So, Freud used the term in a way that so many of us have used the term. Like, you know, shrinking, like, Going small. I'm so small. I'm so small. My brain is shrinked. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's option number five. None of these feel like great options to me. Like, I wanted to know the root of why do we call a therapist a shrink? Right. And all these are possible, but none of them feel super probable. So how do we get from there to here? Um, because these are all like very niche uses of the word shrink. But let's remember that shrink is from an era when there was really negative connotation with therapy and mental health. Oh, yeah. True. Like this is the like when 19- doctors were called quacks. Exactly. Which if you want to cover that one, I would be totally interested to find out why doctors were called quacks. Sure. Also, my foot is so asleep. I cannot <laughs> feel it. So, um, there was a really negative connotation associated with therapy and mental health. The earliest documented reference to head shrinker as a therapist in mainstream media dates to a column in Time magazine. Oh, Time. From November 27th, 1950, where in a footnote reads, quote, Hollywood jargon for psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So it was so uncommon at that time to call someone a shrink that they had to have a footnote. And apparently it was common in Hollywood oh. at this point in time to call psychiatrists shrinks. Um, and really, you could probably make a little bit of a case for each one of the five reasons that we pointed out here. But the specific phrase of the use head shrinker as a therapist feels very much like number one to me, like the head right. shrinkers of the Amazon, right? right? That's the literal translation. Yeah. Everything else is much more metaphorical. Right. So let's, so here are the five and then let's vote and see which one we think, because I also just kind of persuaded you to think it's number one, but really it could have been any of them. So, number one is the shrunken heads, or the head shrinkers of the Amazon, who, the case there is, like, it was used for spiritual and healing practices, but it was also used to terrorize your enemies. So, if it was used for healing practices... I don't think it's that one. Okay. Eh. The second one is the Latin root of shrink, which is to look into... No. Okay. The third one. People don't know Latin. Like when, when this name. No one knows like, Latin. No 1950s one knows in Hollywood. No one knows Latin. No one knows Latin. No one cares about the Latin root. Nope. The root. Root. Third option is William James being hypnotized. And the direct quote here is 
um, he felt like his head, his brain had shrunk because he couldn't remember what was happening when he was hypnotized. Okay. And I think that's what Freud is saying, too. Yeah. Very similar to Freud. But Freud is credible here more so than, than the William hypnotism. Kay. Yeah. Number four is the shrinking violets, which... I forgot it. I forgot already. Okay. So, the shrinking violets is Dr. George... George Beard in 1895 who was describing like super emotional sensitive people who are like shrinking violets. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. No, because this is no, but they're describing a psychologist, not the patient. Correct. So I that's vetoed. And or they're describing the patient, not the psychologist. Right. But when you're saying shrink, you're referring to, to the, psychologist. the psychologist. Right, right. And then Freud, who said, um, he referred to the interpretation of dreams as being like, quote, shrinking a person's brain. Okay, here's my thoughts. Okay. So, we'll use Doc as an example. Okay. I think Doc, like Doc is short for doctor. Doc sure. also sounds like duck, which is where the word quack comes from. Oh. Also, I just made all that up. I love that. So let's look at shrink. And is there anything else? Like, shrink is a is an interesting, um, like, it, it's not a verb. It's not like a, a mm-hmm. an own, like, it doesn't have an ER at the end implying that it's a person. Right. It is, and it's an odd word. Is there well, anything we can tie it to? Head shrinker is the the phrase that made this thing go mainstream. So head shrinker is the word that was used in Time Magazine to describe right. therapists. Right. Got it. Okay. Then, um, then I will go with Freud. Final answer. Freud. Final answer. I. I think a strong case could be made for either Freud or the shrunken heads is what came up the most. Like in all of my research, shrunken heads was like, this is definitely where shrink came from. Oh, okay. Interesting. And then there were several articles that were like, eh, I think a case could be made, but there's no definitive proof. Right. I think for an English word, it's more likely that it's related to like a Western practice or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I completely agree because I mean, it would be such a niche um, reference to be like the head shrinkers of the Amazon. Right. Da, da, da. Right. Versus Freud who everyone's like, Oh, okay. It's Freud. Oh, 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 it's Freudy Freud. Oh, okay. Our guy Freud. Right. Ultimately, we may never know. The term shrink these days is really seen as kind of an unprofessional, disrespectful way of... Unqualified. Yeah. Whimsical, like Dr. Lipschitz from Rugrats is a shrink. Absolutely. Yeah. So, of course, we're more likely to use the proper titles, which acknowledge education and experience, dedication to the mental health field and professionals. Um, and all that they bring to their work. So psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, counselors. Um, but what's important is we talk a lot about language and the value of language. 
And so it's important to think about how using words like shrink shape the public's understanding of mental health and the values of seeking mental health treatment um, and support for any mental health needs. So I think that this is just another example of like, this is an outdated term. It's important to understand some of the places it may have come from, but also important to know that we don't use it in this way anymore. Um, Though I had never once considered where the term shrink came from. Me neither. So now I have so many more questions and zero answers because we can't go back and ask the writer of the Time Magazine column where Hollywood got this idea of head shrinker. Mm. But that's why we have a season three. Is to to maybe find out. Explore those questions. For sure. But also, I was really fascinated by the head shrinkers in the Amazon. So... Oh, yeah. That was fun to talk about. It's almost like they're they're wearing them around their necks, like the teardrops, you yes, know? like exactly. I'm assuming it would only be, like, appropriate for you to wear those that you've killed? Uh, no. So they used to pass them down to younger people. Oh, really? Um, to, like, give them the power of warriors in battle. Also, in 1930, Ecuador and Peru outlawed um, the trade and the sale of shrunken heads because when people found out about the shrunken heads, there were collectors and museums who were like, I want these. So the demand for shrunken heads like shot up. Yikes. And they started using um, like monkeys and other animals. or even like dead bodies that were in a morgue type situation, mm-hmm. decapitating those and turning them into shrunken heads. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what is in museums, about 70 to 80 percent, is believed to be fake shrunken heads, not oh, the real ones. Wow, interesting. Because the real shrunken heads were often like discarded eventually or like either burned or given away. Like they weren't kept around. Right. Um, so the fake ones are most likely what's in museums or in collectors' uh, collections. That is so interesting. Yeah. Um, Also, it's believed that there have been no new shrunken heads in the past, like, at least 30 years. Though there is no... 30 years? That's it? There is no confirmation. Correct. They really cracked down in the late 1900s. So they were outlawed in those... Two particular countries. In the 1930s. And then we think there hasn't been any in the last 30 years. At least, yeah. Wow. Okay. That's not long enough. That's a... Agreed. Maybe. Also, the 1930s was only 90 years ago. Right. Got it. Time is weird. Fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Fascinating. Fascinating. A lot to think about. For sure. Well, let's take a quick break, have some sushi, and when we come back, we're talking about some history. Great. Sounds good. And we're back. Okay, you guys. Today, I am really excited about my topic. Good. I'm That's nerding a out great right now. Start. Okay. Um, today I'm talking about L. Ron Hubbard. 
Who's that? <laughs> L. Ron Humperdinck. <laughs> um, see, I was going with Elroy from uh, the Jetsons. Elroy El- wow. Jetson. What a fucking flashback. I know. So I'm I'm going to w- withhold telling you so that my notes will read as intended and there will be a, a you know, reveal. Excellent. I'm so at glad. The end. But I hope that you find him as interesting as I do. I'm sure I will. I'm sure you will. So Lafayette Ronald Hubbard was born on March 13th. Lafayette. Lafayette. <laughs> <laughs> Ronald McDonald Hubbard. Hubbard. Correct. Was born on March 13th, 1911. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yes. I'm going to interrupt you just one more time. Perfect. You know how we talk about, and we've never actually talked about this on the podcast, I don't think, but in general, we talk about like people with three first names. Yes. This guy has three last names. Shit, he does. No, Ronald. Ronald could be a first or a last name. I that think. is so true, though. And we could we can make an argument. We could absolutely make an argument. Okay, so three last names. Three last names. Is that should we call him that? Yeah, that's what I'm time? calling him <clears throat> for okay. now. So he was born uh, in Nebraska, and he was an only child. Hmm. Wah, wah. <laughs> and his parents were Ladora May Waterbury, who was a teacher. Ladora May. Waterberry. I love the names of this episode so far. And his dad was Harry Ross Hubbard, and he was a Navy officer. Okay. So our guy Hubbard, three last names, grew up in the Midwest. He grew up in a working class family and a working class neighborhood. Sure. He also had bright red hair, which Aww. made him stick out like a sore thumb. For sure. He was a very flamboyant guy. Like, he was a big storyteller. He was always kind of, like, needed to be the loudest one in the room. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he had red hair and three last names. So, <laughs> so <laughs> what more could you want? The odds were not in his favor. So, like I said, he was a storyteller, and he began to have that as a reputation during his childhood. He was a Boy Scout and had a unique childhood in the sense that he traveled a lot more so than a lot of other children during that time period. He traveled to China and Guam with his father. Oh, wow. As he was part of the Navy. Sure. Um, it's a funny story, actually, because his parents went to Guam when he was like 14 or 15, and he found a way to get to San Francisco. And then he hopped a boat to Guam and surprised his parents there. He's like, hey, guys, <laughs> I'm here casual, too. like. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is before cell phones. It uh, Very much so. Very before cell phones. Very, very before cell phones. Um, and I'm just going to hop a boat and casually go surprise my, surprise my folks in a foreign country. Correct. But okay. this, this was just kind of the guy that he was. He was a little spontaneous. He was a little attention-seeking. He was a little bit Alexis. Exactly. Um, he had an active imagination, and he was also a pilot. Well, we love that. Also, I definitely didn't hit <laughs> my drink against the box. You got it. <laughs> um, he didn't do particularly well in school. Um, he didn't love the structure of formal education, but uh, he did participate as best he could. In fact, he was uh, a part of the newspaper in school, and eventually in college, he was a part of the ROTC program as well. Okay. So when the Depression hits... As we know, we, the we have an one. episode about that, so check it out. Season one. 
And guess what his profession was during the Depression? Mm, I'm going to say not pilot because that's an expensive hobby. Yeah. This is a career, though. This is how he makes his money. Okay. It's it's as surprising as pilot. I have zero idea. He was a writer. Oh, that is surprising. He was a fiction and nonfiction writer. So he enjoyed writing about his experiences with being abroad and even his aviation background. And having three last names and being a redhead. (laughs) Exactly. He began to write Pulp Fiction, which is not just a Tarantino movie. Oh, I thought you were... did, Did he inspire Pulp Fiction, the Tarantino movie? No. Oh, okay. No, but Pulp Fiction was a thing. Pulp Fiction is is a series of short stories which are pub- published weekly that people would purchase for between one and three cents a magazine. Um, some of the articles were serial. Some of them were just kind of one-offs. But the articles were printed on pulp or carbon paper. That's, that's where that comes that's from. That's where the term Pulp Fiction comes from. Brilliant. So we know serials are uh, stories that continue on after every week, um, but some were just standalone pieces. So he he wrote both of those. I think that's also how Stephen King got his start. Yeah. We talked about him in Cosmic Horror. That's right. Hubbard was a talented writer. In <clears throat> fact, he could basically, like, he, he was one of those writers. He was like Jody Picoult. <coughs> <coughs> He was like Jodie Picoult. He was like Jodie Picoult and the fact that he could, like, pound out content. He'd just, yeah. like, get it, get it gone. Get it on the paper. Go to Pound Town with the content. <laughs> um, and he could pound out story after story. He typed with only two fingers, which is literally the biggest pet peeve of mine. Like, <laughs> if you... I had this guy who was on the executive team in, uh, uh, like, three... Or two, two or three jobs ago... And this man typed with two fingers. And I'm like, how do you expect me to respect you if the you're two typing fingers? with two pointer fingers? Like, what year is this? So, my dad types with two pointer fingers. All but right. he says... I don't report to him. <laughs> well, he says it's because he's so good he doesn't need ten wow. fingers. He only needs two. We can get that man Mavis Beacon and he can be typing <laughs> in no time. He would sometimes stay up all night and write three pieces in a row. And he was the type of person where he wouldn't sit and start, you know, editing, going over first draft after second draft. He would finish his piece, take it off the typewriter, and stick it in the mail directly to the publisher. He's like, it's good enough. The audacity. The That's confidence. how I write my notes. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. <laughs> good for you. Now, Hubbard wrote a lot of fiction. He wrote romance, mystery, westerns. He wrote um, sci-fi, all different genres. And he did so under many pseudonyms. I was hoping we would get here. Are any of them pseudonyms that we will recognize? No. Oh, never mind then. Hang on. Hang on for this ride. Okay. So, in fact, there were a few times where the entire Pulp Fiction magazine was exclusively his works, printed on various... Wow. Multiple surnames. What a flex. I know. Well, talk about an ego boost, too. For sure. The entire magazine. So, that did happen one or two times. 
So he got into social circles because of this. And this is kind of where we see him start kind of climbing the social ladder. 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 That just sounded really weird. Arose such a clatter. (laughs) Um, In 1938, at the age of 27, Hubbard was getting a dental procedure done. He was basically getting, like, surgery. According to Hubbard, during the procedure, he died. Oh. He followed the light. And when he reached the other side, he was shown the the mysteries of the universe. And as he saw the answers to a lot of life's questions, and before he could read them all, he was pulled back into his earthly body. After this experience, he knew that he needed to write his experience down, which he did. However, very few people have ever read this work. He describes what he anticipates the reader to feel after reading this particular piece about his experience as... Like, imagine being, like, a two-dimensional thing. And you're scooting along, being two-dimensional, and you run into a three-dimensional pole. Oh. And then you climb the three-dimensional pole, and you would basically be going from a 2D to a 3D experience and understanding. So, basically, a revolutionary experience. For sure. That reminds me of in the movie Inside Out when they go through that space and they turn into like 2D objects and then 3D and then they're like conceptual and Hmm. I have no memory of that. Excellent. I'll send it to you. (laughs) Perfect. So he wanted to publish this book. However, publisher after publisher denied to publish this work. Hubbard did claim, however, that Russia stole a copy of this book. Ooh, mm-hmm. all of Russia? Yes. The, the collective Russia. The collective, yes, exactly. In history now, at this point, we've reached World War II, and Hubbard signs up for the Navy and becomes enlisted. He went to Australia and then back to the U.S., and he was in charge of a boat off the coast of Australia. So at this time, there was the idea that Japan could send like a a sub through the ocean that would attack the West Coast. So they did a lot of patrolling of that area. Well, one day, Hubbard thinks that he sees a submarine, a Japanese submarine, and he launches a two-day attack. Ooh. In this two-day attack, the U.S. Navy is now sending missile after missile into the ocean at what is thought to be a Japanese submarine. Turns out, after two days, it wasn't a Japanese submarine, but nothing at all. Cool. Yeah. Kind of a Jaws situation. For sure. So needless to say, his supervisors were not thrilled. After this, he was not super well regarded yeah which made it even worse when he sailed down the coast of california to the border of mexico where he decided to use mexico territory as a target practice site so he bombed the shit out of this land that wasn't even ours no and ultimately after this he was relieved of his command come on three last names get it together 
So ultimately, during his years in the Navy, during World War II, it is claimed that L. Ron Hubbard saw zero days of active combat. But in a turn of events, while he was on a naval boat, right before he was discharged, there was an explosion of sorts, like backfire, basically, from the, the shells. Okay. And he was injured in, like, this weird, friendly fire, bizarre way. And I kind of thought that maybe it was because maybe he was doing something he wasn't supposed to. But that's just me speculating. Because it seems like he he may have, like, the history of, like, making wrong decisions. He may have blundered into something he couldn't get out of. Correct. Now, during all of this time, he was actually married with two children. Uh, When did he have time for that? (laughs) And after um, he is sent to the reserves after his injury... Instead of returning to his family, he heads to su- to Southern California in the early 1940s, or in the 1940s, I should say, after the war. He is feeling inspired by his recent military stint and decides to go back into writing. But as we know, it can be harder than it seems, and he hits a huge writer's block. So he ends up in Pasadena, California at a rocket scientist home named Jack Parson. So Jack was a legit rocket scientist and he was leading, he was a leading member in that field. So he's like a legit smart, smart guy. Sure. Not only was he a scientist, but he was also interested and involved in the occult. Ooh. Now, what do I mean by the occult? Am I referring to astrology or tarot? Perhaps I was imagining tarot. Mm hmm. Or, like, some form of dark magic, maybe? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm in fact, talking about the classic Church of Satan stuff before Ooh. the Church of Satan became secular. Okay. There were rituals. There was blood magic. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And something else that Jack Parson was into was sharing his home with all kinds of people. Nomadic people who necessarily aren't tied down who didn't have anywhere else to go who had interesting beliefs all of those people were welcomed into his home so l ron hubbard who was unwilling to go back to his family his kids and his wife decided he was going to stay with his new buddy jack parsons jack finds him to be of course a flamboyant character with lots of good stories Now, Jack Parsons had a girlfriend named Sarah. What was very progressive of this time was that he and his partner, Sarah, were practicing polyamory. Oh. So what does Hubbard do? He signs the fuck up and he starts seeing Sarah as well. So this is post-World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. Late 40s, early 50s. Okay. So yeah, polyamory is not in vogue at this point no it is not so jack kept journals during this period so we know now that jack was very jealous of hubbard who was mr steal your girl and was taking sarah away from him now what we also know from these journals is that all three of them became involved in these black magic sexual rituals involving blood and masturbation. Huh. The attention, or excuse me, the intention of these rituals is to create a moon child. Oh. 
Luna Lovegood. No. Meaning the Antichrist. Oh. Very different. Very different. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) I take it back. (laughs) Also, during this time, Hubbard learns the art of hypnotism, and apparently he's super good at it. We know through journal entries from L. Ron Hubbard that he believes in this dark magic, specifically a guardian spirit. He wrote these self-hypnotic entries where he would write down these positive affirmations, basically, and then basically like self-hypnotize. So it would be like, I'm worthy, I'm desirable to all women, people trust me, people listen to me, things like that. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, what we also know is that Elron wasn't the healthiest physically, and he had intestinal issues and eye issues, and according to his journal entries, he was trying to hypnotize himself out of these as well. We know from his writing that being powerful and desired by women was very important to him. Sure. So, his entire life, he spent trying to obtain these things... And through his time at Jack's home, he was now seeking a supernatural solution. Not only was he seeking for his understanding and manifestation, he was also seeking to use his gifts to gain financial independence. Elrond goes into business with Jack and Sarah. The plan is for Hubbard and Sarah to use the money that Jack had basically fronted The plan was to go pick up some ships and sail them to California for like a tourism business, like a booze cruise. Think about a booze cruise. Sure. So things didn't quite turn out like Jack had anticipated. Um, So Sarah and Hubbard take his money. They buy the boats, but they skip town to be together. Jack files charges against them. And Hubbard ends up having to return the money, which again leaves him flat broke. But not before he moves to New Jersey and marries Sarah. Keep in mind, he's still married to his ex-wife. Of course. Hubbard then writes a manuscript called Terra Incognita, or The Unknown Territory. And this is where he starts writing about the mind. This is when he starts getting into psychology philosophy and what he will argue to be science so when we both do both when we both do both.com for sure so in this works he states that we have a reactive part of the mind and the reactive part of the mind only stores incidents of pain and fear so only when bad things happen why do i feel like freud would be totally on board with this <laughs> this is like post-Freud, but not by much. Like, sure. This is like a new wave, like... Less than 50 years post-Freud. Well, didn't Freud live into the 40s or 30s? Yeah, but he wasn't, like, releasing new stuff. No, no. No, no, no. All the way up to then. No original thoughts. So, L. Ron Hubbard claims that during every second of our lives, we are taking these mental pictures. And in order for the mental pictures to enter into the reactive mind, there has to be pain and un- an unconscious uh, attachment to it, even if it's just for a moment. Right. He named those images snapshots, or excuse me, he named those snapshot images something called an engram. So he then divides the mind into reactive and analytical. 
the reactive is basically the animalistic mind. And that's where he spends a lot of his book talking about. The idea is also that the mind will feed you back these pictures, these engrams, when those feelings start to return if you run into those situations again. So it's called re-stimulation. So let's say, the, I think the most um, used example is, let's say a young person is like bit by a dog. Right. Let's use me as example. Thanksgiving, fourth grade, right, you right. get bit by a dog. Yeah. Which is a true story, which we've <laughs> talked about. So let's say, like, you know, there's certain smells, there's certain sounds that you associate with that time. Maybe a car is driving by. You have um, trauma. You've got trauma. And so when those things link up again, maybe you get phantom pain in certain areas yeah. unconsciously related to the event that's occurred. Because your brain is like, last time this happened, this was the outcome. Correct. So he calls those experiences re-stimulation. I see how he got there. Now, the technique that Hubbard came up with to work through these traumas is called Dianetics. Now, tell me if this sounds familiar. You ask someone to lay down on a couch and you count backwards from 10. Okay? Their eyelids start to flutter and you work through these various commands in order to distract the brain. At that point, you begin to relive the trauma experience over and over again until you're freed from it all. Sure. Sounds like hypnotism, mesmer, and Freud all mixed together. All mixed together. That's so interesting that you say that. During the reliving of the incidences, you're asked to describe what's happening to the auditor. The auditor, not like a tax auditor, but like sure. an audio auditor, like the person who is performing this. Who's auditing your thoughts. Correct. Hubbard called this the modern science of mental health. So this concept is published in Astounding Magazine and then is published as a book called Dianetics, the modern science of mental health. And people were into it. Of course they were. What was so appealing about this is that Hubbard claims that once you work through these issues, they're erased from your brain. The goal was to enter into a state of clear. Mm. And what happens when you're clear? Your intelligence rises, you'll be free from mental illnesses, you will not develop illnesses such as leukemia. Oh. Bad eyesight. Sure. Because all of these things he's claiming are psychosomatic in nature and can be cleared through this practice. Mm, you see, I was with him up to a certain point <laughs> uh -huh. saying that you can cure leukemia. Yes. And Very problematic, right? For sure. Now, remember that this is now like the early 1950s. And the awareness around mental health was very different. We're in post-Freudian land at this point, And so his book was really like looked at as social science. Mm -hmm. Science being the key <laughs> term here. And it blew up. Hubbard found himself at the height of his career where people were asking questions and wanted to know the answers. In June... Two months after the book was published, he starts hosting lectures in his home. People had literally started knocking on his door, asking, asking 
you know, what other information he may have to provide and like what information could he share? So, of course, he starts charging people to attend these lectures and starts to put together a curriculum. Mm. During these lectures, he claimed that he came up with Dianetics during his post-war period where he healed himself in the hospital after he had served in active combat. That's a bold... Let's unpack that. Right. (laughs) Because we know he never served in active combat. I was more focused on the healing yourself, which is a really bold assertion. Sure, sure. Science of Survival was his next book. And this took the idea of a reactive mind and took it to another step. It introduced a second force called Theta. This book was about emotion. He did something similar to Spoon Theory, where he assigned values to feelings. So basically think of it as death being the lowest and the next maybe apathy, uh, boredom, lethargy. Is that how you say that? Yep. Um, You know, and it kind of goes up from there all the way up to happiness, euphoria. And he claims that, you know, he would associate a numerical value with each of those feelings. And he's claiming that by using these numerical values, you can anticipate behavior based on those values. So I'll make up an example. Let's just say apathy has a value of one, and one usually indicates that people at a one usually lash out physically. For example, let's say something with the equivalent of two, maybe there's history of sexual abuse. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. So those changes in behavior, you graduating from one to the next is called auditing. Okay, so the goal is for you to graduate from one to the next, to the next, to the next, Okay, using these numerical values, using the behaviors that are associated with those numerical values, and then the tools that he provides in his book that teaches you how to combat all of that. Interesting. Sounds like a great, like a great fix, right? Sure. So now he's back on the lecture circuit, preaching about this new thing called Theta. By 1953, we have a new group of people who are into his new concept from his new book. Now, during this time, his Dianetic company went into bankruptcy, and he was bailed out by a millionaire in Kansas. So this millionaire now has the right to use the term Dianetics. So when they had a falling out, L. Ron Hubbard had to start operating under a different name. This is where the term Scientology is introduced. Wait, what? Yeah, girl. Girl! (laughs) You could have started with Scientology. Okay. This is the history of Scientology. Wow! By 1946, L. Ron had registered as a church, as the Church of Scientology, And it was born, 1946. He began to take ideas from his past and incorporate levels into the church's beliefs. The idea is to climb those levels of being until you're operating Thetan. So, Theta, Thetan. 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 So, imagine like... Sounds like Satan. Sure. (laughs) 
With a lisp. With a lisp. So imagine, you know, theta is a sense of being, it's your energy, it's your soul, not necessarily your meat suit, not uh-huh, your body, uh-huh. right? So again, operating as Thetan, as this superior spiritual being that is separate from your physical self. Wow. So L. Ron Hubbard is known as one of the best science fiction writers of our time. And what I'm going to be getting into next week is more about Scientology. But this week, I wanted to cover the history of L. Ron Hubbard, who created the religion. Can I tell you that throughout your entire topic, I had no idea where we were heading. <laughs> yeah. Zero. Whatsoever. No idea. I'm fast. I'm hooked. Mm-hmm. Sign me up. I will be back next week. Perfect. I to hope find that you out are. more about Scientology. We are going to wrap up season three with a two-parter on the history side. I love it. I don't know what I'm going to do to wrap up season two, but we'll figure it out. It's going to be great. For so, sure. Let's talk about intersections. Um, so I think we hit the intersection at the very beginning, which is you covered a little psychology, a little history. I covered a little history, a little psychology. We both did both this week. Yeah. And I think that um, L. Ron Hubbard was trying to be both a shrink and a quack all yep. in one. <laughs> And start his own religion. So a shrink, a quack, and a cult leader all at the same time. Yeah. All three of those people walk into a bar. And they have the the greatest conversation (laughs) with themselves. (laughs) Perfect. No, I think that's spot on. Wow. Okay. I feel like I don't know how I'm going to wait till next week to finish this up. That's okay. Um, so guys, we have had so much fun on season two of podcast without an audience. We are going to be, um, you know, asking questions on Instagram about Patreon stuff that you guys want for, for the next season. Um, we would love to hear from you. Whatever feedback you guys have would be fantastic. If you have not left us a five-star review on Apple podcasts, please do so. That gets us out more in the algorithms that exist in the science boxes of the internet lands. And the interwebs and all the things. Mm -hmm. But... We love you so much. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Have a great week, guys. We'll see you soon. Talk to you soon. All the things. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.